This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Adela, I'm the publishing assistant at Mias Press, part of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen, and I am delighted to welcome Editor Roscoe to the Nordic Asia podcast. Hi, Editor. Hi, welcome everyone. So, Editor Roscoe, you're an anthropologist and you're interested in maritime territorialization and the militarization of the oceans and the seas. You're a senior researcher and the principal investigator of the Transocean Project, and you do all of this at the CMI Christian Mikkelsen Institute, which is in Bergen, in Norway. Well, most importantly for today's podcast, you have just published a book titled Fishers, Monks and Caters, Navigating State, Religion and the South China Sea in Central Vietnam. This book has been published by Nias Press just a few weeks ago, and we're so excited to, to finally have been published it. I also want to thank you because I know you're so busy and you're very kindly taking the time for this podcast. Thank you very much, Adela. It is really a pleasure to be here. In a way, take a step back, you know, from your daily duties and talk about uh, something which is materialized just recently. Mm. So let's talk about that. This book is about fishing communities who live in the fringes of the South China Sea. And you talked about the various ways they interact with the state and with religious authorities, while at the same time responding to new geopolitical challenges. I mean, it's fascinating as a setting. So the book focuses mainly on coastal people and their way of navigating religion and politics. And it's one of the few studies in central Vietnam. Um, how was the process of writing this book? Well, it was long and complex, <laughs> <laughs> as probably every anthropologist will tell you. But uh, more importantly, ethnographic writing starts with the idea. Uh, then you go to the field and uh, your previous preconception or uh, presumption are crap. Totally mm. in the field. <laughs> and then you come back and actually you have to make sense of the messy material which you gather during uh, field work and tell the story. And I think that's the most exciting and most difficult part to tell the story. And it took some time for me to actually conceptualize how to tell the stories because I was in Vietnam before I started to do my field research for this particular book. So I spent three years and I was very much interested in religion and I wanted in a way pursue this, this topic further. And there were already fantastic books uh, about religion by authors such as Ivan Luong, uh, Sean Malarny, Kirsten Andres, Philip Taylor, Alex Soucy or Oscar Salemik. But uh, what I noticed that most of this book either research uh, religion in northern Vietnam or, or southern Vietnam, and they look predominantly on one religious denomination, for example, spirit medium, Buddhism, uh, the worship of the Holy Mother, goddess. Uh, but what I noticed from Vietnam that all these religious realms, they overlap, coexist at the same time, and people, in a way, circulate between these different temples and different gods and different religions. Uh, religious uh, denomination. So I was really interested to cover, actually to show this religious realm in a more holistic perspective. And then when it gets really, really complicated, because I chose Central Vietnam, which was at that time, uh, and it's still understudied area, not so much research has been done. And I chose um, rural, basically rural area for uh, talking about 
new changes and this religious revitalization and revival in Vietnam, which was very much visible in urban centers such as Hanoi or Saigon or or other uh, bigger cities, but maybe not that visible in central Vietnam. And then it became more complicated because I chose fishing communities, which once again brought a new dimension of spatial and temporal in the sense of engagement of fishermen with the coast, with the sea, with with environment. And so through the process of writing, I found myself somehow torn between different problems, which in a way appear uh, during my fieldwork and also writing uh, where the focus should be, whether that should be religion or uh, actually life and engagement of these communities uh, with the sea. And at the time when I was in the field, many of these fishing uh, communities were considered as not very much representative for the Vietnamese culture by, for example, my colleagues from Hanoi. The South China Sea dispute, it was 2006, 2007, so there were already tension between China, but the real problem really started in 2009. So I could, in a way, observe the process, how the importance of these communities actually grew over the time. And so... I have to find a way actually how to wave these different realms into one coherent stories. And this is probably how I developed this model of triadic relation Mm. and navigation between the state a religion and the South China Sea, which Mm. actually bring everything together, the environment, the sea, religion, political aspects in this uh, analysis. Yeah, we'll speak about the triad later on because I, mm-hmm. I find that a really interesting sort of way to look at, at your particular setting. But yeah. let's let's talk a little bit more about the, the field site. So in the book, you refer to your field site as, uh, or in Vietnam, as mm-hmm. the country's loose ends. So Vietnam's loose ends. Can you tell me more about this place and, 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 and why you call it loose ends? Well, actually, the loose, the whole term loose ends, I borrow from Eric Harms' book, okay. The Saigon Age, to articulate the process of how the place is considered marginal, mm-hmm. not representative uh, for the most of Vietnam, become nodal point of Vietnam's newly rediscovered, rediscovered maritime culture and maritime nation. So, in a way, how the marginal places jump, in a way, into the center of the country and became the navel of the country. And loose end in the sense because when I, I remember when I uh, consider different field to choose uh, for my PhD and I was very really very interested in in central Vietnam. My colleagues from Hanoi were saying, why you want to do research in central Vietnam? So they were considered some kind of exotic culture, which is not representative for for the whole Vietnam. So that was this kind of loose end marginality in terms of imagination, what stands for, for Vietnam. The other aspect that at the time when I started to work in those communities, island like Lison, you hardly could find on the official map. It doesn't mean that it didn't belong to Vietnam, but it was not really important to put the small dot on the map. And that only changed this cartographic imagination. Also, it changed with the tensions of the South China Sea. And then, you know, the whole the process, how the state tried to, in a way, 
the loop ends like um, like this island to connect with the mainland uh, through various commemorative initiatives, festivals by underlying the geopolitical importance of the of the places, and in more prosaic way, for example, that would happen that uh, since basically uh, tension. Uh, in the South China Sea, the the island which didn't have electricity uh, was connected <laughs> to mainland, so got the new economic opportunities came along the way. So so these loose ends, in a way, have to be visualized on the map. That's one thing, and also connected through various development economic initiative including tourism at some point that urban dwellers from Hanoi or Saigon or Danaan could come and actually express their solidarity with fishermen who stand at the forefront of the nation, become the vanguards of the nation. So it is kind of opening a new maritime frontier in Vietnam through these settings. Yeah, and, and the way you describe it, it's really a, a particular geopolitical setting, right? Not just geographically, but there's a really interesting political, as you were describing, sort of dimension to it. Yeah, maybe that's what we could explain, that the, particularly people from uh, Lison Island, they found themselves in the middle of the dispute because suddenly they, are, in a way, lost access, free access to certain uh, maritime territories in the disputed areas mm-hmm. of the Paracels and Spratly, and those areas are uh, disputed between several ASEAN countries, including Taiwan, Malaysia, Brunei, the Philippines, but uh, the main claimants are China and Vietnam. So their performances, their presence on the sea and the fishing operation in a way become also the performance of sovereignty and the sea. The other uh, field site, Sahuin, which is located on the Miss mainland, uh, so physically, uh, geographically, is in a way much more firm, much stable part of Vietnam because, right. it's, because it's connected on the mainland. So the process how experience this community, South China Sea, is a little bit different. They don't have that strong relationship between this disputed areas of Paracels and Spratly as Lison, which is only located around roughly 230 kilometers from those disputed areas. So that's different also dynamic which play out between these two uh, places. But both actually represent fishing culture, which brought more attention to them from the state, but they also display different relations with the state. Mm, wow, that's interesting to have two field sites in, in, in that sense, two, two different places to gather data from. Your research focuses on, on marginal people, not that we're talking about, about the data you gathered. Can you tell us more about the marginal and the central Vietnam? You touched upon it, but I don't know if you want to say anything else about it. Yeah, I think maybe it's worth starting from saying that whole, all these categories, marginal and central, they are very relative, constructed mm, and relational, course. which all anthropologists uh, know. And we know that uh, there is nothing new in the idea that in every society perceives themselves in a way 
in the center of the universe, but they also realize that there exists another universe which are more central than theirs. And that's probably what we could say about uh, my field site. So for Lison, the center would be the mainland. For uh, Sahuin, which is located on the mainland, the mm-hmm. center would be the provincial city Kwangai. For Kwangai, that would be the capital Hanoi. And from Hanoi, that would be probably the imagine a central state somewhere in the office spread uh, across the city. But but uh, marginal people also, I use this concept marginality also in the social sense and spatial. Fishermen in Vietnam, as in Southeast Asia and in East Asia, particularly China, mm-hmm. uh, were a marginal group. They were, in a way, outside of the agriculture village. So they, they were often excluded from the political structure of the village because they were landless. They didn't mm-hmm. have a land. They live on the coast. They very often they didn't have even a place to bury their family members. So they buried their members on the coast, on the beaches, in the sand. Right. So they didn't have a property in the sense of land. And they were also considered as those who go to the sea, just invest into the gear boat, in contrast to the farmers who have to really invest into cultivating the land and then take care of the harvest. So fishermen just go to the sea, took extract the fish and salt. So it was considered as an easier way of life, which was not necessarily true, but they were different assumptions about those people and also the hierarchical relation. So that was this kind of marginality uh, which uh, was attached to fishermen. And of course, the old colonial and pre- uh, sources very strongly depicted uh, Vietnam as a wet rice civilization culture settled in the Red River Delta. So there was a strong bias toward farming way of life and conceptualizing Vietnam. And I think with new scholarship of Litana, Charles Will, Whitmore, we also, Anthony Reed, we actually got a new picture of Vietnam that the sea was also very important. Right. It's not that it takes over the land, but the both the land and the sea is integral part of Vietnam and shape the whole society. So, so there is also this marginality, geographical and spatial marginality, because as I said, they were not considered as a representative unusual for the whole Vietnam. And there is also the tendency sometimes to talk about Vietnam or Vietnamese-ness as something which could be representative for the whole country. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to underline, as anthropologist, it's underline the regional and local differences and they, that they are different way of being and acting as a Vietnamese. And those two settings actually show this very clearly. And mm-hmm. what might be considered from certain points as marginal, actually what I'm trying to show in this book is central for understanding Vietnam and how this location, in a way, mm-hmm. in this all context of the South China Sea dispute becomes central for Vietnam sovereignty. Right. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Let's, uh, let's move on and talk about something else. Your book discusses the ways in which the state has an active role in regulating and controlling religious practice in Vietnam. So let's move on from the sort of geopolitical instance uh, of your fieldwork and, and talk more about the, the religious practice and the ways in which it's entangled with, with the state. I would love to hear more about this, uh, this sort of active role that you, that you talk about in your book. With the new, in a way, revitalization of religion, which came with the doimui, which is the uh, 
opening of Vietnam, a kind of uh, Vietnamese perestroika, the state reformulated the whole relation with religion. So, uh, which in a way still try to draw the line between those religious practices which were uh, labeled as having national character and those uh, which were labeled as superstition. And that's a very interesting tension which actually I try to show in my book and analyze how people navigate these two realms and actually mess all these categories they <laughs> them they bring together and then you know what becomes our religious beliefs sometimes becomes superstition sometimes is not so um, I guess the whole process which I try to describe in a book is how this new freedom of religion but still very much how to say uh, controlled and supervised by the state is experienced by the people and how they navigated uh, these new opportunities which appeared and the new constraints which still exist. Yeah, I, I find that uh, sort of really stiff distinction between what is superstition and what is national character religion practice versus the the real sort of real world practice in yeah and place. yeah there is a, a for example a monk in a book who described folk religion in vietnamese which mm-hmm. are considered as a kind of having national character but because he's a religious purifier so he want to keep buddhism in a way purified Preserve. from non-buddhist, mm-hmm. yeah from non-buddhist uh, elements so mm-hmm. it's very interesting how he appropriate the state language and he calls that the folk religions are superstition. Right. Uh, so, so that's it's very interesting. Or there is another person who, for example, call intel- intangible heritage and call that superstitions are intangible uh, heritage. So, so they are all this different way how people use these terms and they actually attach their own meaning uh, to them. I'm quite pragmatic from what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Uh, I'm conscious of the time and there's many things I want to talk about. So, so let's move on. And uh, so you, you speak of three contested categories. Those are state, religion and village. Could you elaborate on this and, and how you've used that? Yes. Uh, I think in the book, I give this example of uh, Fisherman Nya, who in the 80s took a virgin trip by boat to the Paracels in Spratly. And he didn't have uh, a map. He had only the stolen map from uh, from the uh, village administration. And then when he navigated to, to, to those disputed areas at the time, he had to note all landmarks on the way to, in a way, mark his trip. And he had to steer his boat on a zigzag course to avoid submerged rocks. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I use the concept of um, Henrik Wieck, uh, social navigation, but as a metaphor to illustrate how people change their position vis-a-vis the triadic mm-hmm. relationship between state, religion, and society. So what I mean by that is like, is that like Nya, who took the zigzag course to avoid hidden rocks, people carefully navigated their ways through the opposing religion, state, and state society, uh, poles, binaries, to reach their destination, to reach their goal. So they are temporary binaries that emerge and can be imagined to the mythical Greek monster, uh, Stylan Habridis, lying in wait on other side of um, the narrow waters Mm -hmm. and threatening the navigators, who, yeah, has to find a way how to turn and how to act 
and how to actually navigate the whole dangerous terrain. So like these mythical monsters whom landmarks in the seascapes, the authoritative ideologies of state and religious authorities, these modernizers, are important and even necessary reference points for people to navigate every life and they cannot be ignored during they cannot be ignored because if overlooked they become really a hazard and yeah a considerable dangerous for the navigator mm-hmm. so in that sense my understanding of social navigation uh, which i take from henrik Wieck, is a bit different because it's not only navigation in the in the situation of chronic crisis created by war structure poverty or endemic violence or crime but also it could be in the situation where order exists alongside unpredictability brought by these authoritative visions of the state and ideologies so so in a way this triadic model of contested category state religion and village shows how people how the state and religious authorities they constantly bring these binaries between politics religion between modern and backward between secular and religious between religion and beliefs into life and they undermined these binaries are appeared they are temporal and they dissolve and undermine i think eric harms shows in his books that people not necessarily bring these binaries in everyday life but they are not necessarily clear cut in everyday life but they make sense for the people they in a way clarify their worldview so getting a little bit different perspective because i actually show in my book how these binaries are politicized mm-hmm. uh, in everyday life, that they matter because the political values are also uh, attached to them. So that would be an important difference. But it is an important uh, model because it shows that the relation between state, religion and society goes beyond resistance, beyond hostility, mm-hmm. that uh, not necessarily religion could be opposed to the state. Sometimes these religious authorities are on the other side of the pole with people who actually side with the state. Uh, right. So, and it's constantly shifting. So as these fishermen shift their position at the sea, the same happens how they navigate those yeah. binaries in daily life. Mm, yeah, I was, yeah, that's what I, I was picking up from you were saying that again, that pragmatic navigation of daily life. All right, let's, uh, let's again change up the topic. I was so happy to see the chapter six, you, you dedicate a whole chapter to, to women and to gender, not just women, but gender relations. You discuss the ways in which women, quote, subtly undermine men's power. And there's a really funny, interesting sort of anecdote from your fieldwork about a chicken that I won't spoil the anecdote to, to the potential readers. So I'll just leave it there. But could you tell me more about gender and how, and how this fits with religion in context? Mm. Okay, so I will leave this uh, anecdote too for, for, the, <laughs> for the reader uh, to read. So I will not bring that uh, something which might be encourage people to look at the book. Yes, maybe. Well, in, in Sahuin and Lison, uh, women for a long have been excluded from the religious domain as in other parts. So they couldn't, for example, in northern Vietnam, women uh, didn't attend. In the pre-colonial and colonial time, they didn't uh, took part in religious um, events uh, in communal houses or in temples. In central Vietnam, they were also excluded from the religious domain of the fishing communities. Uh, For example, like 
whale spirit worship or Tiena goddess. Particularly in Sahuin, there were all these ideas about that goddess, Tiena, which is very important goddess for fishermen, particularly didn't tolerate women. So, and that's an interesting dimension that even there is a lot of female goddess and in, in central Vietnam, it doesn't mean that there is no ideas of misogyny towards women. It doesn't make, for example, that free for women to attend these religious spaces. Uh, interestingly, in Sahuin, that, start, uh, that changed because men started to have ideas that the goddess lost her potence, religious potence, mm-hmm. that was become power, uh, less powerful. And women immediately seized this opportunity and they in a way came up with their own explanation for this for the powerless of the of the goddess saying that she became a buddhist deity and she became a vegetarian she is not anymore fierce a cruel goddess so she became compassionate uh, and sympathetic to women and this is how actually women very skillfully undermine this man Yes, in religious realm. That actually in the book, which I show through the rituals, when the men come with certain practices, which according to the new <laughs> women ideology, they don't fit at all. And then they have to find a way how to resist that, but not openly resist uh, right. men. So this is how I saying that how they subvert this male hierarchy, but also how it shows that religion is also a religious practice also a gender practice mm-hmm. and how this involves power relation between men and women and how women actually validate their ritual identity and transcendent the boundaries of the spirit world and their own gender you must you must have had quite an interesting position no in that sense being a woman researcher who was interested to men because of your focus on fishermen and hence able to discuss local politics and religion with them. What was your relationship to women in your fieldwork? Uh, yes, right. So before I would say what was my relation with women, maybe I should say that as a woman doing research on fishermen, I actually had a privileged position because I have access to both groups. Men and women. They were, of course, constrained. There was, of course, problem if I want to go on a fishing trip. The one thing it's very practical. It's a <laughs> coast is a border, so in a way I would cross the border. So from the view of the authorities, uh, that was problematic. But that could be solved by getting appropriate permission. The other thing is taboo. Uh, women are not welcome on a fishing board because it's believed that they bring unluck. Uh, they are more oh. practical consideration that there is no toilet. So <laughs> they often ask me, Edita, how you are going to solve this problem? <laughs> <laughs> so there are all these considerations which could be overcome. But I was a strange kind of ethnographer, is sometimes a strange body, which in a way sometimes Sometimes you lose your gender as, for example, as I said, women were not allowed to visit religious spaces or enter the temples. Still, that prohibition was still in place in Lisan uh, when I was doing my field work. But I, as an anthropologist, was was actually given that opportunity. So right. I could sit in the temples with men and discuss all issues. But then, you know, the interesting thing which happened after that, you know, being with men, you know, visiting all important events, going to the ports, they took me back to their house and they put me with their wives and 
daughters and sisters. <laughs> and this is how you actually develop your relation with, with women when you see them with them in the kitchen. And and then I found that you collect all gossip, also what men don't tell you. The women will, in a way, will tell you or provide you with new insights. To, otherwise, I would never have if I didn't have relationship with them. So I would say that not necessarily this relation was either men or women, but I could move between these two reals. And women were important, the very important role in my research, because also, they are very often considered not as fishermen, but they actually fishermen cannot do their job without women, without wives and sisters. So there is some gender right. dimension which extends from the sea to the land. And yes, uh, I gave them the last in a way, voice in my book. So the last chapter, chapter six, actually end up with the women voice. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I'll just ask you a couple, a couple final questions. Sort of the geopolitical setting of the fishing communities that you've been telling us about today. It seems to be particularly important from the things you've been, you've been discussing. And I know that you refer to South China Sea as a zone of connection rather than a zone of conflict, which I find quite, quite noble. Can you tell me more about this vision of the South China Sea? So I would really like to take this idea further for my next book to focus on on those connections and show how the geopolitical setting, the South China Sea, which in a way brought so vividly the issue of maritime borders, of which part belongs to which nation. And I think what I guess what I want to do is to decentralize the whole idea of the nation and history in those sea space and show that they are much fluid genealogies. They are much fluid histories, which are condensed in the nodal points of this particular islands, but which tells much wider history, which goes beyond the nation and uh, maritime borders. I hope we get to record another podcast for your next book, which sounds <laughs> fascinating you. as well. Editor Roscoe, thank you so much. You have provided a fascinating discussion and and you have been wonderful. Just a final note to say that the book is now available in our website, neaspress.dk. Remind you all that the book is titled Fishers, Monks and Caters, Navigating State, Religion and the South China Sea in Central Vietnam. I'm Adela Brianzo. I'm the publishing assistant at Nias Press and this has been the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you so much, Editor. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to answer this question. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.